I'm sure many of you know that being gay used to be something that was incredibly dangerous and that there's still prejudices and discrimination of the LGBTQ community today. But decades ago, senators like Charlie Johns would literally target the Floridian LGBTQ community, especially students and teachers. A committee that stalks and intimidates gay people may sound like a dystopian nightmare, but it did happen. So let's talk about it. So hello everyone and welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about the Johns Committee, a team whose mission it was to out and terrorize gay people in the 1950s. This video will discuss extensively and at length topics around homophobia as well as racism. So if intense detail of either of these discriminatory acts will upset you, then this is not gonna be your episode. And towards the end of the episode, pedophilia is also going to be mentioned. Now, I understand that some people find it offensive to refer to a group of gay people as the homosexuals, and there's some controversy around this term and how it's often used in a dehumanizing way. Please note that when this term is used today, I'm only using it when I'm quoting or summarizing directly from a source, and it's not intended to offend or upset anyone by doing so, but to maintain the accuracy of the statement that was being quoted. So for those of you still here, let's get into it. Before we get into the committee itself, it's extremely important to understand the context of the time. This was the Cold War era, and as we've discussed multiple times previously, this means that the second Red Scare was in full effect. Because of the intense rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union, people everywhere, and especially federal employees, had to prove their loyalty to the US or else risk being viewed as a threat and a Soviet spy. President Harry Truman ensured this in 1947 with Executive Order 9835, also known as the Loyalty Order, mandating that federal employees be analyzed. For a country that cares so much about freedom, this was very questionable to say the least. However, these fears were not entirely unfounded at first because yes, the USSR was known for espionage activities, especially during World War II. The Soviet Union's intelligence agency, the KGB, has continually been depicted as larger than life, villainous, and to this day, it fascinates and thrills us. Novels, movies, books, there's so much media about and featuring them that it can be hard to distinguish the truth from fiction. Back in the 1980s, the New York Times wrote, in some aspects, the KGB is a government within a government operating under its own rules. In 1953, after the death of Stalin, it was accused of trying a coup in the Kremlin using secret police troops. Its chief, Lavrenti P. Beria, was seized by his party comrades and shot. In the last decade, the KGB has, in addition to penetrating the code rooms of the NATO alliance, acquired the plans of American spy satellites, advanced radar, computer source codes, and conventional weapon innovations. The fear of communism, of the KGB, of Russian spies, all of it was extremely prevalent. To make matters worse, American soldiers such as Colonel Frank Schwabel falsely confessed to outlandish crimes they didn't commit and refused repatriation or coming back to their home country. Word spread about communist interrogators torturing American soldiers into fake confessions. And as you can imagine, the fear of brainwashing and communism was through the roof. The idea of mind control spread in the movies like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers and FBI Director Hoover repeatedly referred to it in his book, Masters of Deceit, the story of communism in America and how to fight it. 
international events like the Soviet Union successfully testing a nuclear bomb in 1949 and the Korean War only fueled these flames. The threat of communism was horrifying. I can't really explain how much it grew and how widespread it was in just a few minutes, but just know it was truly massive. So what did the United States do? Well, they clung to American traditions, conservatism, and condemned everything else. Any leftist groups and dissenting voices were suspended as being communists. Hoover accused Martin Luther King Jr. as a communist, as well as other civil rights groups. Anyone who wanted to change the status quo, especially during the Red Scare, was seen as a threat. Senator Joseph R. McCarty of Wisconsin accused people of being communists without any evidence, ruined the reputations of many, and called anyone that criticized him of being sympathetic to communists. Because of him, the term McCarthyism used to describe the practice of publicly accusing government employees of disloyalty and unsavory methods and using that to prosecute them was born. In 1957, the Supreme Court decision Yates versus United States effectively put an end to McCarthyism when it required that the government actually prove a defendant took concrete steps to overthrow the government. Hearsay, theories, and accusations from fearful, paranoid senators wouldn't suffice. Still, the damage was done and this mindset had spread rapidly, even evolved, according to my source. Mississippi had numerous anti-communism activists and programs. Politicians use anti-communism as an important tool to preserve the Southern way of life. This preservationist approach was particularly useful in Mississippi when trying to prevent integration. Because the Communist Party supported equal rights for African-Americans, people who worked in the civil rights movement were referred to as communists. Eventually, many politicians in the South would label anyone a communist who disagreed with them on any issue. Being branded a communist caused many innocent people to lose their jobs and livelihoods, as well as being ostracized by their communities. In 1956, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission was formed. The formal mission of the state-funded organization was to preserve states' rights. The committee's main focus was to fight federal efforts to integrate Mississippi, as well as educate the public on the evils of communism. The commission had an investigative unit that would obtain facts which would be of value in protecting its sovereignty of this state and preserving segregation in Mississippi. Agents followed suspected civil rights activists and submitted activity reports to the director of the Sovereignty Commission, Earl Johnston. Johnston suggested that the investigative unit make identifying and collecting information about communists in the civil rights movement a priority. The Mississippi Citizens Council, another segregationist organization that associated the civil rights movement with communism was often referred to as the Uptown Klan. They were in many ways, a lot like the KKK, but they claimed to not promote violence against black people, just, you know, stripping them of their rights and accusing them of communism instead. As you might expect, this is what leads us into today's topic. After all, this wasn't used against just black people, but gay people as well. And before we get into the nitty gritty details of it all, there's really no other place that is like okay to place a sponsor going forward. So I'm just gonna drop the sponsor bloop right here. It is getting colder outside and all the more reason to stay inside, stay warm and stay cuddly. And that includes not only feeling good about the foods you eat, but knowing that the foods you eat is good for you too. That's where HelloFresh steps in because HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items every single week, including vegetarian options, calorie smart, gourmet options, and plenty of other varieties to make sure you are satisfied. 
As fall transitions to winter, there's nothing better than cozying up with a comforting home-cooked meal. I'm looking at my app right now and it looks like for next week, I have something called Crispy Kickin' Cayenne Chicken Cutlets and also Sweet Chili Pork and Cabbage Stir Fry. I'm excited to try it, see how good I am. I've never attempted to make either of these types of dishes before, so we will see how it goes. So start your cooking journey today by going to hellofresh.com prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's hellofresh.com prism14 and use code prism14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. And hey, maybe cooking the meal is sometimes just a little too much after the busy day. I don't know what you have going on in a day. Maybe you've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run or chores to take care of. So what is the secret to clearing that to-do list? Well, it might be a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials, and everything on your grocery list delivered. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered with DoorDash. Get drinks, snacks, and other household goods in under an hour. So recently I did have a cooking fiasco and I ended up cooking soup. I, God, this is so embarrassing. Anyway, so I was cooking soup and I didn't realize I had made it so hot. It wasn't like really bubbling or anything. And I was like, oh, this is fine. So I immediately just took a spoon of it to try it and I just slurped it and I burned the top of my mouth and I had no ice cream in the house. And so what did I do? I door dashed some ice cream. 10 p.m., it was great. They stared at me, it was fine. So for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code PRISM. Between 1956 to 1965, Florida had its own brand of McCarthyism. According to McCarthyism in Florida, published on the State University Libraries of Florida, Senator Charlie Johns had wanted to create the Florida Legislation Investigative Committee for a while. It had been a top priority of his. Yet it wasn't really until the Brown decision of the Supreme Court, which ruled that racial segregation violated the amendments, that he was able to make this committee a reality. While we might be inclined to think that decisions like these would help end racism, it's important to remember that racists have found workarounds plenty of times before. Discrimination doesn't just end by itself. Johns presented his legislation as a form of anti-integration and was able to win approval for its foundation. Other sources explain that. On the heels of McCarthyism, the Florida State Senate in 1956 appointed a committee to investigate all organizations whose principles or activities include a course of conduct on the part of any person or group which would constitute violence or a violation of the laws of the state. The committee was originally designed to seek out bus boycotters in Tallahassee. There was actually a law on the book stating that black people could not organize carpools. John steered the group to investigate the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People at first. He was a member of the Porkchop Gang, a group of about 20 conservative North Florida lawmakers that favored segregation. So this move made sense to John's. Years later, John's himself said in an interview that they called us the Porkchop Gang because we came from small districts. They said we represented pine trees up there, but we did a lot of good. It's pretty depressing to think that Johns died believing he did the right thing. 
After all, pork choppers would often send hardcore segregationist legislation to the governor in those days, with one of them even suggesting that they shut down Florida's public schools entirely as opposed to integrate. John's committee looks almost tame by comparison to that, even if it still had incredibly racist roots. John's first target was the NAACP. He demanded that they turn over their entire membership list to the committee, which for obvious reasons they didn't want to do. The last time a list of members went to authorities, it ended up in the hands of the KKK. So the NAACP had very just and very sound reasons for being concerned about that happening again. Therefore, the NAACP fought back and their case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Finally, in 1958, in the case NAACP v. Alabama, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the First Amendment protected the free association rights and its rank and file members. When this was decided, the NAACP was one of the few, if not only, active civil rights organizations in the South. The fact that they had protection, even if it was just to this minimal, small extent, was a fantastic step forward. But for Johns, it meant he needed to find someone else to intimidate, bully, and paint as the face of a threat to American freedoms. And for him, it was now gay people. In the early 1960s, the committee shifted to focusing on homosexuality. At the time, just being gay was illegal in the state, so Johns already had good reason for going after these kinds of people. And he literally tried anything, whether it be literature that promoted equality, any works that the committee deemed pornographic, and life on university campuses was incredibly scrutinized and picked apart. Why go after universities? Well, according to the Tampa Bay Times, To the committee, the heart of the anti-American conspiracy was the corrupting indoctrination of vulnerable students by politically radical and in some cases, morally degenerate teachers. By the early 1960s, Republican state Senator and future Congressman Bill Young joined the committee in 1962. The committee's attention had turned to political and moral subversion at the state's four public universities, the University of Florida, Florida State University, Florida A&M University, and the recently created University of South Florida. While racial agitation was still a concern, the original investigation of civil rights groups such as the NAACP had evolved into a broader search for classroom subversives, including homosexuals. This ended up yielding better results for the committee. They could brag about protecting young minds, uncovering unfit professors. And because of these fantastic results, the legislature expanded the authority of the committee, allowing them to investigate homosexuals in all state agencies. I was actually able to find some of the letters written to Johns at the time, and they are incredibly infuriating to put it mildly. For example, George Stallings, a representative of Duval County in Florida, wrote to him in 1961 and stated, Dear Charlie, I suppose you say this clipping about the professor at the University of South Florida blowing off about how the university has accepted Negro students and should announce it to the nation. It seems to me that if this guy wants to make such an announcement, he should not be salaried in a tax supported institution in the state of Florida. We have enough trouble without state employees making more. I hope that our committee will be able to do something about this bird and his big mouth. These papers also discuss how they had a budget of about $150,000 per year. Yes, people were getting paid to intimidate and harass people they didn't like. That's literally all this committee was about as far as I can tell. RJ Strickland, chief investigator, was particularly effective at uncovering these practicing homosexuals, apparently. Beginning in 1958, he, assistant investigators, and the university and city police officers would question hundreds of suspected homosexuals around the state. 
they literally spied on private residences, infiltrated gay bars, staked out bus stations and parks, and even men's bathrooms and college campuses. They'd question college students, juveniles and reform schools, sex workers, truck drivers, scout leaders. It's beyond disgusting the actions they took to harass people they suspected of being gay. A year later, in the report Johns made to the legislature supporting all of this, he said there were several classes of homosexuals within the state. Apparently, homosexual activity became more prevalent as you progress upward on the educational scale, according to Johns. And he added that lesbians and gay men were made by training, not born, and a surprisingly large percentage of young people are subject to be influenced into homosexual practices if thrown into contact with homosexuals who desire to recruit them. First of all, if people could choose to be gay or straight, why would anyone choose to be gay in a climate like that if it intimidates or harasses them? Secondly, it isn't a disease. You can't turn someone gay by influencing them or just, you know, give them a little touch or something, you know, like they don't just magically become gay. There's literally so much wrong with John's mindset for me to just even dissect it all. But yes, this is real. This really happened in Florida. And of course it happened in Florida. A committee that was originally created to advocate for segregation switched gears, bullied the gay community instead, and treated people's sexual orientation as a contagion. Not everyone believed the committee, but those that spoke out were quickly silenced. A columnist for the Orlando Centennial criticized the committee, and shortly afterwards, he was arrested for violating a law against oral sex, then lost his job. Nelson Pointer, publisher of the St. Petersburg Times, also questioned them, so they tried to connect him to communism. So this so-called moral panic became an entirely other version of the Red Scare, the Lavender Scare. The Lavender Scare started long before John's committee and seemed to officially start when the US Park Police initiated a sex perversion elimination program in 1947. In 1948, Congress passed an act allowing for the punishment of gay people, labeling them as mentally ill. And in 1950, McCarthy delivered an infamous speech where he claimed 205 communists worked at the State Department. Although these two statements may sound completely separate from one another, the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare really do go hand in hand. The phrase communists and queers floated around, conflating the two. Both were assumed to recruit, both were seen as shadowy figures with a secret subculture, and both were allegedly morally weak or psychologically disturbed, and both were seen as godless, and both undermined the traditional family structure. But if communists and Russians were more of a threat politically, why go after gay people? Well, according to my source, there's one very simple reason for this. Because gay people actually existed in the States, they write. Unlike communists, however, homosexuals were being uncovered, a fact that encouraged further pursuit. From late March to May of 1950, Senator Kenneth Wary, a Republican, and Senator J. Lister Hill, a Democrat, undertook the first investigation. The two men alone made up a subcommittee of the Subcommittee on Appropriations for the District of Columbia. No records from this investigation survive beyond press coverage and two published reports, one from Hill and a longer one from Wary. The senators heard testimony from Lieutenant Roy Blick, the head of the DC Metropolitan Police Department's vice squad. Blick claimed that 5,000 homosexuals lived in DC and that 3,700 of them were federal employees. These figures were highly speculative, but dramatic and widely reported by the press. Weary also emphasized the communist connection. Only the most naive could believe that the communists' fifth column in the United States would neglect to propagate and use homosexuals to gain their treacherous ends. 
Indeed, one special investigator told the committee that many homosexuals could be spotted at the communist meetings routinely monitored by DC police. Queer people, gay people, and communists were lumped together, undeservedly so. But because communists were so dangerous, it was assumed that homosexual people must be too. Although we're going to get back to that Johns Committee and their focus in just a moment, it's important to recognize that this wasn't an isolated incident and it wasn't just the Johns Committee that tried to intimidate people, equate them with communism and arrest them. Some tried to fight it like Frank Kameny, who was fired from his role at the army map service in 1957 because of his sexuality. After losing his case, Kameny spent the rest of his life fighting back, picketing the White House and never held a paid job again. He founded the Mattachine Society of Washington and became an incredibly noteworthy advocate for gay rights. Decades and decades later in 2009, Kameny was issued an apology for his firing after all that time. But his case didn't end with justice. It simply reaffirmed what people already believed at that time, that firing people for being gay was perfectly acceptable. Even though he fought back, it's important to recognize that many simply didn't have that option. Historians estimate tens of thousands of gay and lesbian workers lost their jobs over the 1953 executive order that banned them from government jobs as the order was in effect for decades. Many of them faced unemployment and severe emotional distress to the point of resorting to the unthinkable. And it wasn't until 1995 that this order was reversed, proving that the very real and lasting effects of the lavender scare were still in place even recently. Universities were one of the biggest targets of the Johns Committee. The 1950s were brutal for the LGBTQ community as raids were conducted, bathhouses broken into, and gay people were arrested time and time again for just, you know, well, being themselves. However, once the committee found that some of the people they were arresting were teachers at universities, it sparked an entirely new fear for investigators and citizens. Soon, concerned citizens, including the mayor of Tampa, met to discuss how the University of South Florida was corrupting children. And I can just hear the shrieks of, think of the children now. Evolution, acceptance of interracial dating, questioning the Bible in the classroom, all of it was deemed as views that were sympathetic to communism, immoral, you name it. On April 10th, 1962, the official investigation of the USF began at a Tampa motel room. Strickland and attorney Mark Hawes paired up to conduct a probe of alleged homosexual activities and began removing students and faculty from class for questioning. Apparently, Strickland would question these students in a motel room, specifically room 170 of the Hawaiian Village Motel in Tampa. Word got out about these interrogations and the university tried to defend itself just as the NAACP had done, saying that the Johns Committee was overstepping legal bounds. Yet the distrust of higher education was strong. In 1963, Charlie Johns reported that they had uncovered homosexuality, anti-Christian teachings, and communist sympathizers at the school. The work of the committee has got to go on, he said. It's larger than any of us. The University of Florida and the University of South Florida had been targeted to the point of fear and even anger. The president of the school himself, John Allen, tried to argue that the committee only actually found one case of homosexuality among the school's 500 staff and faculty rather than 39, they claimed. Unfortunately, his efforts were in vain and the American Association of University Professors placed them on a blacklist for four years. But even worse yet is the damage that this committee did to the faculty and students. One PBS documentary called The Committee interviews several people that were interrogated and the effects it had on them. 
According to one lesbian woman, Ruth, she was interrogated for 17 hours in the university basement. They asked her graphic questions, asking for names, didn't allow her to go to the bathroom or get anything to eat. She didn't have any names for them, so she didn't give them information, but she said she doesn't know what would have happened had she actually had names to give. Another former student, Chuck, said that the interrogators that accused him of being gay presented him with a letter from the president telling him to confess. I was surprised he was in on the witch hunt, Chuck said. Yet that former president, Wayne Wrights, has Florida State University's union named after him. It's ironic that the student union is named after a homophobe, Chuck adds. Another sickening point the documentary makes is the fact that students were paid $10 for every name they give. The committee was literally bribing them to out people, turning students and staff on one another. A former police officer, John Tylston, is also interviewed in the documentary. When he was an officer, he'd work with the committee seeking names of teachers and students to arrest. John claims that interrogating criminals in this way didn't bother him, but in this situation it did, and he states, "'It was pointed out to me that you took them out of their classroom. It was the benefit of the shock. I felt sorry for people this happened to. For the most part, these people were rather young, very frightened, and had been given this information about they're going to be kicked out of university before I got to them. There were some scare tactics involved. It bothered me a great deal to be talking to somebody that's a PhD and here we are. We caught this person in a restroom or somebody told us they're gay. I got him across the desk from me. We're gonna wreck this man's future or this woman's future? No, it wasn't worth it. But you do what you gotta do. Former students that have been interviewed in this way are still traumatized to this day by those events. One of them, Art Cobbleston, claims that it went even further than just interrogation rooms. I came back after summer break and I had a new roommate. One day he came into my room appearing to be very drunk and he was walking around the room, taking his clothes off around the room and starting trying to entice me to have sex with him. I grabbed my shoes, I got up and I got out of the room as fast as I could. Some days or weeks later, he admitted to me that yes, he was employed by the Johns Committee and they hired him to try and entice me into the situation. It was a low degree of terror, he said. These tactics ended up leading to the forced dismissal of at least 70 students and professors at the University of Florida. I don't want to say that their lives were ruined because I truly hope that these people were able to find peace and happiness someday, but at the least they were altered. The Johns Committee wanted to wreck them and shame them for literally no other reason than their sexual orientation. And this happened less than 70 years ago and there are people still alive today to tell the tale. This isn't something we can just write off as ancient history. It hurt so many, intimidated so many, and spread prejudice far and wide. Hell, the committee even hurt people by their inaction too. Apparently, there was a time when the committee uncovered a crime. During a visit to a women's prison, they heard testimony about Tampa police officers extorting the women for sex and a judge who even paid for sex with them. Yet, the investigator at the Johns Committee did nothing because all he wanted was dirt on gay people and nothing else mattered. So what finally ended all of this? Well, the Johns Committee shot themselves in the foot in 1964 when they released Homosexuality and Citizenship in Florida, also known as the Purple Pamphlet. Please know that this portion is where pedophilia and child porn is gonna be mentioned. So if this is particularly upsetting for you, please just, this this is the end of the road for this episode for you. Now, this pamphlet was supposed to be an educational guide, so to speak, telling people how dangerous homosexuality was. I was able to find the purple pamphlet online, but for once, I am not gonna recommend that you look through this yourself, unless 
you know, you really want to better understand it because frankly, it's pretty disturbing. The pamphlet's preface reads, to understand and effectively deal with the growing problem of homosexuality, an understanding of its nature and manifestation is essential. And it is for that reason that the committee has sought in this report to preface its recommendations for special studies leading to legislation with a review of the scope and nature of homosexuality. They're depicting this as an educational tool, and yet the very first page shows a young man in a thong with rope around his arms. The caption within the book says that fetish appeal is part of homosexuality and that artwork of this nature is a strong stimulant for them. On the next page, they even speculate that nearly 50% of unmarried males under the age of 35 in America have partaken in homosexual practices, even though they admit that this is just an informal guess. On page nine and 10, they equate the straight society with morality and the gay society with dangers. They say that the love and fulfillment that comes with homosexuality should be condemned since they can't procreate. Hell, the purple pamphlet even condemns the use of birth control in heterosexual relationships for the same reason. Then on page 13, the purple pamphlet does something abhorrent and unfortunately unsurprising and equates homosexuality to pedophilia. After all, because one little league coach in Florida preyed upon the young boys he coached, that means that every gay person must be a predator, right? Absolutely not. Just because straight men have preyed upon young girls, it doesn't mean heterosexuality is condemned in the pamphlet. So why should the reverse be true? Child predators as a whole are despicable, regardless of sexuality. Yet the purple pamphlet continues on this route, equating homosexuality with pedophilia. On page 36, they publish an entire page worth of over a dozen photos of naked boys. And I obviously will not be showing this. The caption underneath these photos reads, These photographs are from the catalog of a supplier of homosexual erotica. And let me be clear, homosexual erotica does not mean child porn. The purple pamphlet is blanket labeling every single gay man as accepting this, as liking this, and being, as the pamphlet puts it, fixated on youth. Child predators can be gay, but that doesn't make gay people automatically child predators. And it's pretty disgusting that Florida took taxpayer money and compiled literal child porn together with it. It's so sickening and upsetting that I just really don't have words to describe it outside of that, how just horrific this is. In addition to this, another portion of the pamphlet that people found graphic was the glossary of homosexual terms. They listed terms like butch, gay, queer, and others that I've literally never heard of before that are far more graphic. For example, one term they defined was degenerate, which the pamphlet explains, extremely sexual with any person, male or female, mentally unbalanced when sex is involved. Some have been known to use animals, dangerous to gay and normal people. The term dirt they defined as rough trade, normal people the same as trade, people who like to be passive partners, except they rob homosexuals after the affair of both money and clothing. And there's many, many more. Some of the terms accusing people interested in specific sex acts of being psychopaths, some of them explaining what 69 is, it's just all very odd. Thankfully, it was the extreme of the purple pamphlet that finally seemed to bring some people to their senses. Florida taxpayers were not thrilled that their money had gone to making this pamphlet. And in one county, it was declared obscene and it wasn't allowed to be shown to the public. One state attorney even threatened legal action and publications began to draw attention to the graphic photos and alarmist claims. 
Apparently intimidating and threatening gay people behind closed doors was fine, but these outward graphic photos and vulgar language, some sections even describing glory holes and other sex acts is where people drew the line. Amid the outrage, the committee quietly disbanded. People obviously wanted an apology. Ruth from the PBS documentary says that all Florida needs to do is legalize gay marriage and she'll feel like that's enough of an apology from the state. Now they did so in 2015 and there are still those that oppose it and there's a ban on gay marriage that's technically part of Florida law. I I don't know. As of writing it, the defunct law is yet to be removed. It's kind of a gray area. For others though, allowing gay marriage isn't enough and some UF students want an apology. They want this chapter of Florida history to be acknowledged. One student at UF, Kristen Jackson, works at the J. Wayne Reitz Union. Reitz, the same homophobe that allowed the Johns Committee onto the school and supported their actions. According to the Gainesville Sun, there are some among UF's faculty and student body who believe the topic deserves more discussion. I'm not sure people know the level of problem that all this caused, master lecturer Stephen Knoll said that professors thought about suicide, that students were removed, that UFPD worked in, if not illegal, certainly unethical ways. That should give people pause. People don't know about stuff that happened last week, much less 50 years ago, he said. I can understand how people don't know about this. At the very least, if UF doesn't want to bring attention to this, then Florida as a whole should. The fact that the Johns Committee only ended because they shot themselves in the foot, it's pretty pathetic. People weren't upset with them for saying horrible and dehumanizing things about gay people, just for being too vulgar and using their tax money on the purple pamphlet. As historian Stacy Bruckman puts it, it's well worth the state of Florida to take one second and say, sorry, we overstepped our bonds. It's better late than never, right? In 2019, State Representative Evan John and State Senator Lauren Book introduced a resolution with a formal and heartfelt apology but as of writing this, the resolution has not passed. Students at UF say it would make them feel more comfortable there, especially considering that this has been swept under the rug for so long. I hope that one day there will be an apology and that this will never take place in Florida or anywhere ever again. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new today. Thank you for sticking out with me to the end if you made it here and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.